I'm Steve. I'm one of the members of the pastoral team here. I thought maybe I would give a, a bit of a bigger introduction since there's so many new faces. Um, some of you I have not met. Um, so I'm part of the pastoral team alongside Melissa, who you saw in the video. And I have a kind of a unique role here at Elevation. Um, my sort of the two areas of focus that I work on are teaching, which is why I'm up here, and transition. And transition is kind of the waters we're swimming in right now. So it's kind of all-encompassing, uh, reimagining who we are, where we're going, what we're doing, what this community looks like in the midst of this season of change. Uh, what's a little different about me is that I am, in, I'm an interim pastor, so I don't actually live in the community. Um, I'm only traveling alongside Elevation for a season, and at some point that season will end and we will have new leaders in place, and that will be uh, a great time. Um, my wife and I, we bought, uh, we used to live in downtown Windsor, and in the pandemic we bought a little hobby farm relocated about a year ago uh, to Don Euphemia, you've probably never heard of it, near Bothwell, probably never heard of it. Uh, it's west of London. And there we have our, our five kids, our two cats, our two dogs, and our almost 40 chickens and guinea fowl. And uh, it's a fun time. So I, I commute in. So if uh, you'd love to connect, uh, grab a coffee, sort of the best time to do that for me is on the weekend when I'm here. Um, but I would love to do that. We, um, when my wife and I were younger, and we were moving from Toronto to Sarnia, where she's from, we were looking to move out of a townhouse and buy our first house, that sort of monumental growing up moment. We, um, I, I got a new job in Sarnia, so we were relocating and, uh, and we were putting in an offer on this house. We got accepted and then came the, the, the challenge, the task of getting approved for this, you know, sort of for the mortgage, moving from like pre-approval, which is sort of like yes with an asterisk to like actually yes. And, um, and we hit some hurdles right off the hop. You know, we were relocating, changing cities, new job, and we had like a mountain of student debt. And so we started getting no, and then no, and then no. And, uh, and we were getting really frustrated and kind of defeated. And then uh, my wife saw this ad, and the ad was something akin to like, do you love teenagers? Do you have space in your home? There's this new program in Sarnia, Lambton County for, called Family Therapeutic Care. It's fostering teenagers who have kind of sort of bounced around the foster care system. And my wife, she has a youth ministry degree. She's like, do you love teenagers? Yes. Do you have space in your home? And she's like, I would, God, if you gave us this house, if we got an, an acceptance. And so she, uh, you know, that kind of became like a conversation with God, a prayer, maybe an agreement they entered into. And the next day, we got approved. And so we were like, okay, this seems like maybe it's something we should pay attention to. And so uh, after, you know, several months of training, and we finally opened our doors to being a foster family, and uh, we got placed with a 15-year-old girl who, I mean, there was some beautiful moments, there was some lovely moments, there was also some really challenging foster care hard moments. And in those hard moments where you just want to give up, it's these, it's these conversations you had with God at the beginning when God said, oh, remember when you said you'd use your house? Oh, yeah, remember when you got accepted the next day? Yeah, that's, that's why I called you into this. That is a reminder of the, of the nudge, the call, the invitation into this that, that anchored us sort of in a season of despair and hopelessness. When we were moving to, uh, from Sarnia to Windsor, 
we were moving into this downtown Windsor community, and uh, we, we drove down to Windsor. We met the community. It was fantastic. We had this great barbecue. It was very lively. It felt so amazing. Like, absolutely, this was where we needed to be. And then we began to kind of count the costs on our drive home. And we were fostering at the time. We had access visits back in Sarnia. So we knew we'd need to be back and forth from Sarnia to Windsor every week, maybe multiple times a week. And we would cut through Port Huron, Detroit, both bridges. And, uh, and this started, you know, as we thought about the costs, like toll money, gas money, we were like, this is actually going to add up and it's going to be a cost to our family. Is this like a wise move? And so we're having this conversation and I get out of the vehicle in Detroit to pump some gas and I'm pumping gas and I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't really talk to people who I don't know. Um, and so this guy across from me, he's just, he's not an introvert. He starts up, up, up a conversation with me. He's like, so what do you do? And I'm like, okay, how do I answer this? Like to get out of this conversation. So like technically I was like part-time pastoring, but I was also working for community living, doing like direct support services for folks with developmental disabilities and autism. And so I, I tried to answer that murky answer. And he's like, no way. My brother has autism. He's like, thank you for all you do. Let me buy your gas. And I was like, I was like, what? And he's like, no, man, I, I want to buy your gas. And so there in that moment, he bought my gas. And it was like, I got back in the vehicle and I'm like, Emily, that guy just like randomly bought my gas. And there in that moment, it was like God was saying, hey, you're worrying about money. You're worrying about how you're going to be able to afford this back and forth. And God was like, I got this. I got your gas. Pay attention. We're going we're gonna to do this. It's going to be good. And I'm reminded of how th there's these stories in our journey, individually, collectively, as a community as well, that mark us along the, along the journey. These markers that sort of anchor us in these times of, of challenge. The, the story we're going to look at today is from Joshua 4. And it's a story of markers and memories that remind us on the journey we've been on, the way God leads us and prompts and calls and nudges. And one of the ways we do that, and maybe, maybe you do this, maybe you don't, is through journaling. Journaling is a great way of remembering. Uh, and, and our journals maybe are full of starts and endings and, and more endings and more starts, maybe turning over the page and starting anew, scratching some, something out. And our, our lives, too, are full of starts and endings, endings and starts. And uh, we stop doing one thing, we start doing a new thing. And in his book, uh, Managing Transitions, William Bridges speaks of the difference between starts and beginnings. And I think it's really important that we pay attention to this. He says, starts involve new situations, but beginnings involve new beginnings, new values, new attitudes, and most of all, new identities. Often, he would say, organizations think they're doing something of a beginning, but they're just kind of starting something new. And it takes a long time before that identity piece really sinks in, before we get to that place of, of beginning something. Before we get to new beginnings, though, we have to come face-to-face -face with our endings. And so there's the crossing of the Red Sea, where the, the community of Israel leaves Egypt. And the crossing of the Red Sea doesn't really take Egypt out of them, though. They long for it. They want to go back. It doesn't fully end things. It did end their time of being slaves. It did start them on their wilderness journey, but their identity was still wrapped up in this. It was a long time before they got to a place of beginning. The crossing of the Red Sea marked an ending and a start. Author Henry Cloud says uh, in his book, uh, Necessary Endings, he says, getting to the next level always requires ending something. Leaving it behind and moving on, growth demands that we move on. Without the ability to end things, people stay stuck, never becoming who they were meant to be, never accomplishing all their talents and abilities that their talents and abilities should afford them. 
So as we know the story, they cross the Red Sea on dry land, the waters crash, uh, close behind them, and they move on. There's a kind of an ending. And then there's a start, and growth demands that we move on. It's also the start of their wilderness journey. But then what happens is something interesting. Moses and Miriam do something that helps them shift from starting to beginning. They sing a song. It's kind of a weird thing if you think about it. They, they're there on the other, side of the, the, the Red sea, or the other side of the Red Sea, and they start to sing to mark their journey. And you can find this story, Moses' song, and Miriam kind of echoes the refrain. And it's a story of all that God has done up to this point. And I think about the power of ritual. Like, why is it that we do this thing we're doing right now? We come into a building, we sing some songs, they're really good, we connect with them emotionally and spiritually, and, and they anchor us in this moment. There's something about this repeated repetition, this ritual that we do, that centers us in the story. We recreate the story, we retell it. We enter into the story and remember anew each and every week. The goal, though, is not simply that we remember, but it is this act of remembering that causes us to be formed and shaped. That when we meet Christ here in this space, we are transformed. Hopefully, we come out different people. So today, we're talking about markers and memories, specifically that help us shift from, from an old way to a new beginning. And uh, I've got my wheelbarrow. If you're at the back, maybe you can't see it. I've got my little wheelbarrow. It's a junior gardener wheelbarrow. It's my, my three-year-old son's. Um, I brought it with me today. And I've got some rocks inside of it um, that I took from my fire pit. And because this story we're going to look at in Joshua 4 is about rocks. And I thought, what better way to sort of have this than by holding rocks in our hands and, and using them as sort of markers of what we're doing. And so the story features two different sets of 12 rocks. The first is this, uh, they go into the Jordan River, they pick up rocks, and then they take them with them where they go. And the second one is Joshua as a leader. He takes 12 more rocks and he puts them in the riverbed. It's sort of like a monument, if you will. And in both cases, these are sensory experiences. There's particular postures taken. There's a lot of body language description. None of these are abstract spiritual experiences necessarily. They're not just the kind of thing you close your eyes and wishfully think about. They're, they're embodied practices. So let's look at that story in Joshua 1. It should be on the screen. There we go. After the nation had finished, Joshua 4, sorry. After the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Choose 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, take 12 stones from this place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing, carry them with you, and set them down at the place where you spend the night. So first, God's saying to Joshua, do this thing. Moving on to the next slide. So Joshua summoned the 12 men who he had selected from the Israelites, one man from each tribe, and said to them, go across to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift a stone onto his shoulder, one for each of the Israelite tribes, so this will be a sign among you. And in the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You should tell them. The water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. When it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. These stones, therefore these stones, will always be a memorial for the Israelites. So this is Joshua calling him to do it. And then the third section is they did it. The Israelites did as Joshua commanded. They acted this out. They followed it through. The 12 men took stones from the middle of the Jordan, one from each of the Israelite tribes, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the camp and set them down there. And then we find out that there's a second thing Joshua does. Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan 
where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. These stones are still there today. I'm not sure if they're still there like today. I'm imagining maybe they are. A friend of mine's doing like a Holy Land tour, so maybe I should go see if these rocks are still there. So there's, there's these two things happening, this interplay of these stones. The first is this communal practice. These 12 people go in, pick up rocks from the river, bring them with them. These boulder-sized rocks they put on their shoulders to where they will camp and sleep. You may have noticed that they are carrying other things with them. There's this, there's this Ark of the Covenant here that's described. And if you don't know what it is, it's a gold-plated chest that holds the Ten Commandments. And it's typically located in the center of their community, and they cart it around everywhere they go. And it made me wonder, like, these are people walking around in the wilderness, in sand and deserts, and they're carting this, like, gold-plated chest. Why are they carrying such a heavy burden? Could they maybe not make it out of, like, palm fronds or wood or something lighter, something easier to carry? But it seems that part of the... All right, back. Stop hand-talking, Steve. Um, it seems like part of the purpose here is to tangibly remind the people of the centrality of God in their midst, in their wilderness journey. He's not abstract. This is not some spiritual thing. There's like pillars of fire and pillars of cloud, and they're carrying this heavy chest with his words in, the, in it so they do not forget. And so they take and add to their burden in this process, they take these 12 boulders and cart them through the sand. And it seems kind of strange, but when it comes, when I, you know, when I think about why, I think about this personal practice of journaling that you might have. Uh, I think about my own, a, wiser, a person wiser than me once said, Steve, you need to have a call journal. Every time that God nudges you, opens a door, shows you a way to go, leads you somewhere, write it down. Because there will come a time where you are in the thick of it, when you are in the, the weight of it, the, the despair, the sinking feeling, and you will need to remind yourself why you are doing this hard work. Go back to your call journal. Go back and flip through. And so we might have individual practices of journaling. Maybe some of us are really into it. Maybe some of us are not. It can be a burdensome practice. It's good for us, yes, but a burden nonetheless. It tends to be heavy work, but really, really important work. The quote on the screen comes from Tiffany Banks in her book, Journaling as a Spiritual Practice. Journaling isn't just keeping a diary, it is making sense of life. It's wounds, it's setbacks, it's losses alongside its joys, it's celebrations, it's momentous highs, all in an effort to heal and grow. Communities need these practices to remember the journey as well. We need practices of remembering where we've been and where we're going. So they take these 12 stones from the river and they carry them on their shoulder as a kind of living journal, a memory etched in stone carried with them. And later on, when, when their children ask, there's this future purpose. Children are connected into the story. They're brought in. They're reminded of God's faithfulness. And we too will remember the faithfulness of God in our midst, in our trials, in our sufferings, in our hard and heavy journey. Another important note here that I think is worth naming is that God is not in a rush. They get through the wilderness, and it says they, not through the wilderness, it says they cross over, sorry, the Jordan. And it seems like maybe they would want to just rush ahead. Like, finally, we're through the wilderness. We want to get to the greener pastures. But God says, slow down. Take your time. Let's do this thoughtfully and purposefully so you don't forget it. So they go back. 
They go back into the Jordan. It's this good reminder that, that as we move forward, our pace is really important. Let us not be hasty. Let's move forward with purpose, though, following after God. And then there's this second practice. And I'll be honest, I, I kind of missed this second practice when I first sat with this story. I thought, oh, there's just 12 stones. But then I looked at it with fresh eyes and was like, oh, there's actually 24 stones. Joshua's doing something here that's, that a leader does. He's taking these 12 stones and putting them back in the river and setting up something as sort of a monument. Again, it speaks to slowing down, paying attention to the details, that Joshua is doing this leader thing. Moses has died. Moses has laid his hands on Joshua. He's commissioned him and Caleb and said, you're going to lead. And Joshua has been paying attention to Moses, watching how he leads. He's not hasty. The first thing he does is he goes and sets up these rocks in the river so that for two reasons. One, if they decide they're going to turn back, you know, there's giants in the promised land. We're going to go back to Egypt. They have to cross where these stones are. And maybe these stones will remind them, wow, God has been with us on this journey. The second reason is to remind this generation and all generations, especially in a time of drought, that God has been faithful. God provides. So I found this quote in the Enduring Word uh, commentary that says, he set up these stones so that in a season of drought, these stones could be seen and would testify of the time that God completely dried up the Jordan, especially in a time of drought. We need to remember the great things that God has done. So if you'll grant me a few more minutes, we're probably going to go over 10. It's okay. Um, we won't go too far, though. I would love to do what Joshua did and remind us of who we are with some stones. So I'm going to make a little monument here for us. The first thing that I would love to echo back to us is that our experiences and our hurts continue to form us. As Elevation, you know, the songs this morning were just spot on. God's doing, you know, behold, God's doing, he's making all things new. He's doing something new here. He makes beautiful things out of the dust. And and I, I can't help but think that this community is made up of people who come from places and experiences of hurt. And some of us were here when the rupture of the former lead pastor leaving happened, and others have entered this community bringing your own wounds and your own pain from the church into this space. And hopefully these experiences shape us and form us into a more compassionate people, into a more justice-oriented people, into a people who want to, uh, uh, who want to lead with, uh, with safety and healing and redemption in mind. So these experiences, painful though they are, they make us better when we do the deep work of remembering and working through the pain individually and communally. The second thing I want to say is that, is that, um, that was a bigger one. We're not ready to give up on what it means to follow God, but we have our questions. Maybe you have your own questions. The the pain that we've experienced individually, collectively, has caused many to give up, to walk away from the church, and in many cases for really valid reasons. But by being present in this community today, we're saying we're not ready to give up just yet. Yes, we have our doubts. Yes, we have our wounds. And yes, we have our questions, but we're pressing on, hoping we can do things different, better, healthier. The third thing I've come to to love and see in this community is that this community has a deep impulse and and heart for justice. That uh, I think of the prophet Amos, who who when he, he saw injustice, we had two options. We can either ignore it or we can seek to remedy it. And he said, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like a river, like a righteousness, like a never-failing stream. That justice is part of the heartbeat of this community. 
And that's a good thing. Let's not forget that. The fourth thing I want to remind us of is that our wounds have not turned us insular and inward. So often when we come to, to places of pain, it's so easy to kind of turn inward. And, uh, and often communities, when they're reeling, they become insular, inward-focused, and we stop caring about what happens out there. But embedded deep in the fabric of this community, as I've observed, is this desire to be a community embedded in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, a desire to reach out, to go out, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world around us. And that's important. Connected to that is this idea that we are a compassionate and caring community. Uh, as churches grow, there's this institutional uh, impulse that takes over. Churches begin as this organic and highly relational community, but over time, the institutional and organizational stuff takes center stage, and often it leads to people getting hurt. And so this past year in the wilderness, as we have been recalibrating to a people-first approach, we read uh, about this in the book, a church, uh, in the book, a church called Tove, and um, and so as new people find this community, we need to remember to take time to slow down, to listen to each other's stories, to tell our stories, and to welcome these folks into decision-making as well. The last thing I'll, I'll say is that we remain committed to doing things better, to growing to God, and to one another. I think this, there's a strong commitment here that's, that's beating for the reimagining of church as a safe place, as a welcome place, as one for the weary and the wounded, as one where it's safe to bring our questions and our doubts, but also to reimagine how we as the church hold power, how we are accountable to one another. And that is the work of the transition team before us that we're proposing. We're asking you today to say yes to that team. If we come back full circle to endings and starts and beginnings, my hope is that these, these rocks before us remind us that we can't go back. We're not going to go back. This is the kind of ending. It's also a start. But more than that, my hope is that it functions for us as a kind of new beginning, as we move toward new values, new postures, new hopes and dreams, and a new identity. I'm going to, um, I'm going to invite up Patricia um, to give us instruction on what we're going to do next uh, in terms of this vote. And so, Patricia, why don't you come on up and give us Give us direction. And then I want to close with a prayer, if that's okay, after uh, Patricia. Well, as is our normal tradition, as um, Eli had pointed out, we will be gathering in the, uh, the gym for discussion. Now, I know normally not everyone actually goes in for the discussion groups, and that's all okay because they like to mingle. But what we're asking everyone to do today is to make your way into the gym. There's the tables that are set up. By all means, grab a table, sit down. And Chad, who has retired but not, um, because he will be leading that next portion um, as a member of our nominating committee. So we invite everyone, um, whether you want to stay into discussion groups or not, everyone to come into the gym, um, sit down at one of the tables, or just kind of stand around and make yourself at home. Chad will then give us direction. There'll be an opportunity um, just to listen about what is happening with an affirmation vote, uh, an opportunity for some conversation if that's needed. Uh, it will not only be in person, but also online. So you give us opportunity to make sure that that happens at the same time. Um, and 
So once the vote is taken, um, Chad and I, because our nomination team members are dropping like flies, um, Melissa took a plane out of the country, um, and, uh, and Courtney her, is home this morning with a sick family. Um, so we will go and tabulate those votes. Uh, we will come back at about 10.25 and let everyone know um, just what the response has been. And, uh, and then we will have uh, just a chance to pray together and to go about our weeks. So, Steve, if you could come and pray for us now. All right. Well, God, thank you for leading us for leading us toward an ending, toward a start, and hopefully toward a new beginning, uh, an identity rooted in you with new postures and new values, and one that sees you and honors you and follows your lead. In this next uh, little decision we have before us, would we honor you with our, with our votes? Uh, would we show up to this process? And uh, yeah, would we lean in? And uh, would you continue to lead us, God, in Jesus' name? Amen.